Hello and welcome to Behind the Suit and Tie with me, Tama Chowdhury. In Behind the Suit and Tie, we explore the people behind the workers and why they do the things they do. We also discuss the latest news and how we can make work more human. Have you ever sat next to a colleague, perhaps for years, and realised you knew very little about them? This podcast is here to learn more about the world of work and the people within it. Hi and welcome. Today I've got Costa Christou with me. Uh, you uh, describe yourself as a civil servant, affordable housing campaigner and trustee. Costa, how are you doing today? I'm really good. I had a... a a false alarm with COVID today, but um, I'm I'm fine. So feeling pretty good in these times. That sounds quite intense. Uh, how did that play out? I took a test and it was negative. And in those 30 minutes waiting for the outcome, I suddenly developed all the symptoms and then they went away as soon as I realized it was negative. So I'm just a hypochondriac, apparently. It's quite a stressful time. Um, I think uh, particularly around the UK with the, with the rates going up. Um, how was that in terms of uh, work and things like that? My colleagues are very understanding. We have a very kind of conversational relationship. Like we tend to talk throughout the day, which is a nice thing. And it's not something I, I had in my previous role. So I kind of would just, and I think everyone on my team had the same kind of thing at some point. So we're kind of aware of it. And we just have a joke not for us all to get COVID at the same time, which is kind of likely at the moment, but thankfully they're around the country. So hopefully that will mitigate the issue. Yeah, it's uh, quite crazy times we live in. Um, well, you mentioned you were a civil servant. Um, I, of course, was also a civil servant. Um, so I think I know what that means. But uh, tell us, what, what does that mean to you? So I'm kind of a niche civil servant in a few ways. So basically, I am a civil service fast streamer, which basically means I'm on a leadership scheme within the civil service. A lot of people outside the civil service um, see it purely as a graduate scheme, which it is, but also isn't at the same time. If that makes sense, it is like 20% non like graduates or people who are existing civil servants. And I'm also in the digital data technology and cyber fast stream, which is specifically focusing on kind of tech professionals within government so i work within a specific kind of realm that is its own world within the civil service in the department of international trade and i work in a very niche policy area of tariffs so kind of a multitude of multitudes yeah well uh, i think tariffs are becoming more and more in vogue uh, these days uh, for those of us that do follow uh, politics and uk politics um so th- that that's uh, pretty interesting in terms of almost the, the layers that we can split a bit that you know department for international trade um looking at it from the tariff point of view but then actually doing that from a digital data technology side um what does that mean for your role in practice in terms of what you do so my role title officially is a delivery manager which basically means you act as an umbrella of sorts for your team against things like admin forms blockages and getting stuff done so basically if they have little like issues of like delivery it's up to me to kind of 
make sure that they tell me these things so I can kind of collaborate outside of the team to mitigate those. And it basically means I constantly have at least five tasks on the go at any one time, which is a very kind of hectic way of working and not something I was immediately accustomed to. But a few months in, I've really taken to it and I quite enjoy it. But yeah, it means that I'm constantly defending my team against annoying things that a lot of workers have to deal with in order for them to like complete the work they've been asked to complete. And what sort of things are those? So to give you an example, today I was basically filling out a form so we can get one of our contractors' contracts extended uh, because we're not ready to let them go yet. And if you're a civil servant, you'll know that in the tech realm, there are a lot of contractors and we have a developer that we want to keep on. So I have to fill out a form and then do all the type of tax forms to make sure that their stuff is aligned and that they're getting paid correctly and make sure that their extension gets approved six weeks before they're due to leave. Sounds very dry and it is, but I quite like admin at the same time. I'm a weird person. I quite like just kind of linear tasks that I can like tick off as I go. So it's just a lot of those every day. Well, I mean, it, if you like that, then it sounds like you're in the right place then. Um, that, was, that was interesting. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you're a, you're a weird person that you, you know, you'd like these sort of linear tasks. Um, what do you like about them? I love planning and I love strategy and I find it very, I feel like I can tackle anything as long as it's written down in a list. I like just information that is just kind of written as even when I journal, I do it in a way that makes sure that everything that's on my mind is written in a very logical order so that I can revisit it. I'm constantly managing to do lists. Like I, I just rip this off my pad and I just go like even the most mini granular tasks of text someone back I'll write down on my to-do list to make sure I don't forget so I use a Trello board which is an amazing piece of kind of open source free software where you can just make loads of lists and it's how I manage my workload every day and it's just changed my life it's, it's fascinating um yeah no I've dabbled with Trello uh, I've ended up using more of the Kanban balls uh probably doesn't mean a lot to many people listening but um I guess it would be interesting to hear. Do you think you've always been that sort of person that likes putting things in lists and being organized? I can kind of trace when it started. When I, I, I have a very like specific memory of being in year seven. I first started at my secondary school. I got very mediocre such results. I was in the middle set for everything. And I received my timetable and realized that I was in the middle sets and I was just not satisfied. And I was like, no, I want to be in the top sets. All my, a lot of my best friends from primary school were in the very top sets and were in the gifted and talented group and I was I just wasn't I was in the very middle kind of of the rankings of the year group and I've always been quite ambitious and I saw myself as someone who really wanted to like do a lot in life so I just decided that I'm gonna have to like put a lot more effort into becoming a bit more intelligent than I was at the time so I just took extra homework did extra reading and to kind of get that workload done since then I've just been ultra organized more so than I probably should have been because I realized that at the time I wasn't as like intellectually gifted as other people in the school so I just had to really put in a lot more effort and I came from a very non-academic background none of my family went to uni so I decided that if I wanted to kind of exceed those expectations I had to put a bit more effort in than I otherwise would have if I was naturally super intelligent 
Yeah, it's fascinating to hear. And uh, yeah, I guess for those listening outside the UK, so I guess year seven, what that's like when you're 11, 12, that sort of age. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's quite a conscious memory and quite a, so, well, I, I just know, you know, at that sort of age to make quite a conscious decision, that's, um, well, it's quite remarkable in of itself. I guess in hindsight, like my definition of intelligence has changed. So like, I think kind of having the wherewithal to realize that you're not what you want to be or to even be 11 years old and have like a five-year plan. It's not normal. I normalized it in my own head because I thought it, it makes complete sense to have a five-year plan because at the end of school, you're going to take exams and you start prepping for those exams years before taking those exams. And to do the right exams, you need to be in certain classes. So if I hadn't been done that, I wouldn't have ended up doing three science. I would have done double science, of triple science, which is a very niche, like British school kind of like terminology. But to me in my world at the time, it was a big deal to be in the top set and to have that validation of feeling like, and I think it's also a state school thing because realistically, if you're in a state school, unless you're in the top sets, you're not really going to be on par with your contemporaries who are in grammar schools and private schools at top universities. I really feared being overlooked. And I was very conscious of like competition with the rest of the country for like these limited places at these elite universities from a very young age. And from that point, that also triggered kind of my knack for research because I was already researching universities at that time to know where I needed to be aiming for. So yeah, that's kind of where the trauma started. That's This is the conversation for a therapist really, but that's for another day. Uh, well, it, it, you know what? I, it's, it's great to actually hear these uh, sorts of things because uh, quite often, you know, we, we talk about our um, path through, I don't know, adolescence, youth, uh, up through university and, you know, we get the glitz and the glamour. But, um, you know, it's what I really enjoy is we're, we're talking to people and then, you know, hearing your own stories, you know, that's not one that you would normally hear or, you know, what is normal? I don't know. But it's 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 quite remarkable, really, in its own way. Um, and I... I can't help but just uh, reflect that that's that's quite a push or a drive that you had within yourself. Um, and you mentioned a few things in terms of, you know, uh, coming from a non-academic background. Um, for those of us that perhaps had a bit more of that, you know, you didn't need some of that. You know, I went to a private school, so I think, you know, when I was a bit more lax, it, the system kind of pushed me along sometimes. And I, I suppose... I'd be fascinated to, to understand a little bit more. What, what kind of gave you that drive, perhaps despite the circumstances? It's, it's interesting. My parents weren't necessarily very pushy, mostly because they weren't academic. I think they, well, uh, I mean, being like a third generation immigrant, so my, my family is Cypriot and culturally it's very expected that by the third generation in the UK, you will be becoming accountants and lawyers and doctors so that was kind of ingrained but in a really weirdly passive way because my family really weren't driving me as hard as my cousins were being but so a lot of it actually came from my own kind of volition my grandparents did really instill in me a really good work ethic because they came from very humble beginnings very rural beginnings at a time of like very a lot of like political instability geopolitical instability economic instability they worked in the restaurant sector for the most part and my grandmothers were also seamstresses so like they had like a lot of hard graft in their lives and they didn't want me to have to do the same but subconsciously 
that same graph com- graft converted into like white collar graft in my own life and continues to this day so i think that's kind of the root i think just kind of being cognizant i think it's kind of a common immigrant narrative among particularly the commonwealth diaspora in the uk of just like realizing that you've that these resources exist in the uk which was instilled from colonial times and then successive generations building the capability for younger generations to come through and do more and more which builds a lot of pressure but i do think that's where it came from because my parents weren't necessarily pushing me directly and it wasn't until my gcse's when the teachers really noticed me so i think a lot of it did just come from like cultural expectations yeah it's it's really interesting to hear because i think you know that immigrant story can there's there's a lot of similarities that i can certainly say in terms of my own background and yeah it's clearly there's also differences um so you know coming from a bangladeshi background and you know there is that thing of education uh, for me i'd say it, it, it was definitely from a it was also from a parental side as well um and so the, there are some things I, I i just find it really interesting you know there are certain things that i can i can see and hear um and there's other things that it's just very different because obviously you know you came from a very different background as well um so um well thank you for sharing um and i guess going forward a little bit um because because you know like me uh you went through into the civil service um and i would i would love to hear your sorts of uh your impressions of the civil service as you know this well i I won't color your your comments but how did you find the civil service pleasantly very pleased so far i mentioned that i'm a civil service fast streamer that won't mean a lot to some people and then to some civil servants it means a whole lot basically you're put on a pedestal from the moment you join the organization but the organization itself is like in in parts very casual for example like in operational delivery like around the uk which is where most civil servants actually work at border forces in job centers it's very detached from like the policy world of whitehall and my department is in whitehall so I think a lot, I'm, I, I'm always like a very meta thinker. I think of the wider ecosystem and where I fit into it. So in, in the immediate vicinity of my work in the Department of International Trade, I'm very impressed with how little legacy I'm dealing with. There's so much, there's like a stereotype that you're constantly dealing with like 80 year old computers at work. You're just kind of having to do the best with that and no one communicates. But in the time of international trade which is a very young department by comparison i think it was i should really know this i think it's like started as its own department in 2016 which would make sense right brexit and there's just a very little legacy to work with we kind of make up as we go along things are changing very rapidly which as a new joiner is actually good because i'm not contending with a lot of context i'm kind of joining at a time where i know that in three months time i'll be having a, a conversation with a new joiner as if i'm an expert even though I've really just joined myself. So it just feels very out of touch with the the consensus of what government is and what it used to be. So from that perspective, it's actually quite exciting. And even within that, being in a more technical kind of digital role, there's a lot of exciting transformation around government. The British government is actually comparatively very good for digital. So I feel a lot of investment in me as an employee, but also in the infrastructure that we're building. So, I mean, I, I say this disclaimer three months into my role, so I might feel very differently in a year's time. But at the moment, my most of my sentiments are positive. I also had the benefit of working in the private sector beforehand, 
So unlike a lot of people who join the civil service, having never worked in the private sector, I know for a fact that the grass isn't always greener. So I'm a lot happier now, which makes me a lot more kind of relaxed in where I am and less angsty to go back to the private sector, which I have no intention of doing in the, in the short term, at least. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It's it's always an interesting uh, thing. I, I, civil service is such a big thing, uh, so it's always good to get views. Um, and you, on that point, actually, you even mentioned uh, the stereotypes and uh, well, what 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 I interpret as the stereotypes of you know the eighty year old and and the computers and things like that. Um, why do you think people think government is like that? That's a good question. I feel like a lot of people. A lot of people are aware of the civil service because and it's interesting because a lot of most like kind of civil service roles are not public facing at least in the way they used to be like the only thing i can think of at the moment is like job centers like that is immediate public facing public impact everything else is kind of behind a layer of sorts but most people are aware that government does a lot of policy stuff and that is implemented around the country so there's that component but there's also the policy side which feels very london centric very whitehall very pale male stale etc so i think there's the kind of bureaucratic bureaucratic perception but there's also the kind of inefficient lazy association that you make with a job center which is kind of more through kind of cultural representations of job centers this is just because my line manager worked at dwp for a long time so a lot of our conversations around civil service culture stems from the kind of benchmark of DWP, Department for Work and Page Pensions. Another thing about civil service, a lot of acronyms. I'll try and break them down as I go because I realize I'm falling into it having only just joined, which is embarrassing. So I do think it's kind of the minimal interactions you have with civil servants on the ground. I know this because like various members of my family have claimed uh, universal credit or benefits as they used to be. So that kind of comes immediately to mind. But also a lot of people associate local government with the civil service, which is true but also not because they're not directly related in the same way but obviously like you think of like getting a ticket on your car or having to pay congestion charge or potholes and you just think oh government oh inefficient bureaucratic old-fashioned i think there's 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 a lot i'd agree with there um yeah it's the joys of uh, representing the uk public sometimes not even visibly i suppose um we came back to this theme of, of family actually again and um well, firstly, I'd be interested to hear how your, well, how your family, what do you tell your family about the civil service and how do they kind of feel about you working there? That's a very complex question. When I told my grandmother that I didn't want to be a lawyer and that I was probably going to work for the government, she cried at the airport when I was saying goodbye to her and not like tears of joy, like tears of disappointment because she wanted me to be a lawyer. And I think she still wants me to be even though working in policy is close enough, not like I work in policy, but that's why I tell her because tariff data service is kind of a complex concept for a 76 year old Cypriot woman. But I will say that they're coming around. I think when I tell them I work in IT, it makes things a lot better because they associate IT with money, but which isn't really the reality of the civil service. Although I will say civil servants aren't as badly paid as they're presented to be i think that component is now that i've explained the trajectory of a fast streamer which the idea of the fast stream is to get you into the senior civil service within 10 years which now being in the civil service is absurd <laughs> on some level because 
of the amount of experience you really need to be a senior civil servant like adequately but the more I learn the more I try and share with my family to like kind of ease their fears that I've just thrown away my degree and my trajectory to work for the government in like a low position which isn't the case at all so yeah I kind of I've learned I think a lot of like immigrant kids come up with ways of kind of explaining your world as like an, a go-between in a way that sounds appealing but is also not completely dishonest so I, I'm putting that into practice at the moment yeah uh, I, I couldn't help but uh, laugh just as you're talking um, both sympathetically but also very um, well empathetically in the sense of I know a lot of what you're saying um, I think it's um, you know I think it's a rich thing to hear and and you know some of our colleagues perhaps you know grew up in in the UK uh, white Caucasian perhaps a lot of them it, it's it's a funny thing because I just don't think that that's the sort of conversations they would have and and furthermore the idea of kind of working you know for the government um, I think in a lot of households would be like oh you know that's a good job and you know you're doing some good stuff okay whatever political views but you know working government um but for some of us uh and by the sounds for you actually um we have this weird thing that actually working in the government is not seen as a necessarily a positive thing because it doesn't fit into the the kind of views i mean you know coming from a south asian background it's always it's like doctors and lawyers and, and, and that sort of or engineer or something like that there's 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 a, there's a sort of a small um sphere of jobs that uh, are approved and the other ones less so um so yeah it's um yeah i love i love hearing these stories even if they're a bit uh hard to take sometimes oh definitely it's a conversation i have a lot i read a lot of books by writers who come from immigrant backgrounds because i just like to hear com the comparisons and the way the kind of there are there, there are threads throughout the, irrespective of your specific ethnicity or family background or region and there's also like different nuances that I enjoy to hear as well. But I do think that it also comes from like the people that I know, like through family who are civil servants. Like I, for example, one of my family friends, father, he works at like Dover as like a border security person. So like a lot of these, like I said, operational delivery roles around the country, which make up the bulk of civil service work are the public facing associations that people make with the civil service unless you're like an mp so like there's a big gap between that i guess it's up to me to fill in for people to make it seem a bit more real and to be a bit more authentic to what i actually do and i think gradually it's changing especially um with the internship programs that the, that the civil service do which i was a part of both the early diversity internship program and the summer diversity internship program which are aimed at first years and third year and second year sorry and that that is focusing on getting people from um, I guess untraditional backgrounds however you'd want to call it into the civil service and also educating them and I think that's having a very gradual effect on people's perceptions particularly within communities that HR is trying to getting get through the door yeah and interesting you mentioned that uh, so I did the that summer diversity internship a good while ago um but that's kind of got what got me a little bit more interested in in government uh which i suppose suggests that it does kind of work um albeit you know those schemes are not always the sometimes a bit controversial i suppose um 
I guess we we were talking a bit off air actually on this point, and and I think you you touched a bit about it a second ago of this thing of um, you know, coming from an immigrant background, and and you mentioned that kind of going away and kind of representing um and kind of explaining it and, and whether to your own community but even the other way around in whitehall um you know we met kind of doing through things like staff networks um i just wanted to kind of uh yeah talk a little bit more about that that sense of kind of having to represent your community or your background and, and what that means for you well, I, it's something that I, I think about a lot, but also I think positionality is really important. For example, I kind of classify myself as coming from a working class background because my parents like didn't earn loads of money growing up. Like I just and my family didn't go to university, but also I'm very well spoken. So a lot of people don't necessarily know that I'm, I'm like from Croydon. So it's quite educated. Like they can just assume that I'm just kind of like in the middle somewhere, which is advantageous for me. And further, I'm, I look like, I don't, I'm not, I'm like, a, I'm a white person, effectively. I'm a white person. I don't, I'm not a person of colour. I don't face a lot of those issues that people do in the workplace due to like the colour of their skin, which I think is a really important like nuance to name, even though I'm from like a Commonwealth immigrant background. So I think those are things that are like my privileges that I can get away with and can help me so I can access certain pathways, but also not face a lot of the difficulties that people who are also in those pathways deal with but also uh a lot of my work in recent years have been kind of intersecting class with lgbt stuff because two things i'm really passionate about advocating for and bringing lived experience into the workplace and i think it's unfortunate that we have to take up our working time to or time that we could be doing to develop ourselves in terms of like hard skills into kind of making like doing what HR teams should be doing I'm speaking mostly from my 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 previous role in the private sector of like being on committees for pride for example or like speaking about kind of bringing about apprentices into the company and that takes up a lot of time and it's also very laborious because you're kind of bringing your own experiences into it but also you're doing things that make a company for example more money or help other people and they tend to be quite unsung so i think it's there's such a like a demand for these employees but if you overstep your bounds you're a troublemaker and you're a disruptor and not in a good sense so a lot of these colleagues who i'm very kind of count myself very lucky that i know a lot of these people from my background in youth organizing who are these disruptors but they often get very burnt out and I th it's hard to see the long-term sustainability of these people because they're often kind of used and abused and then their contributions are really valuable but they often get overlooked for promotion because they are disruptors so it creates a weird paradox where you have these people developing these very like acute advocacy skills in the workplace but it may be people who aren't as vocal who are able to slip past them because they aren't as much of a risk to power structures in the long term so at the early stages of my career i'm learning how to walk the fine line between the two things and i feel like now being in public service i don't feel the pressure as much because you have relative job security in the civil service compared to in the private sector i hope that answers your question it does um it raises more uh, existential ones uh, but i 
I I think you explained it uh, very well, actually, and and I can't help but think about my own experience a bit about it. And um, maybe I, I it's a bit further down and a bit more jaded. Um, but I, but I think you are right in terms of the civil service being more open to such things. Um, that being said, uh, I did do a lot, and I got a bit tired and frustrated, and you know, got got the label of troublemaker and all those things. So I think it's a I, I definitely empathise with that point of uh, walking the fine line of whether being a a disruptor which is a good thing or a positive disruptor or a troublemaker and sometimes disruptor is just bad anyway because you know everyone wants everything to stay how it is and you know innovation is i don't know having a two-minute conversation about well-being at the end of a meeting that's has gone on for three hours um so yes i can i can certainly um yeah <laughs> get, get the points that you're saying there um I was intrigued as well in terms of some of the points you said of, you know, the people who are, you know, perhaps less outspoken, then getting the promotions and, and um, meanwhile, you have these people who are more disruptive, but are actually kind of burning out, I suppose. What is the reason that we have this happening that, you know, the people that are kind of disrupting, but in a positive way and kind of wanting to bring positive change that is making an organization make more money? Um, aren't necessarily getting rewarded for it. Well, I think it's because diversity and inclusion had to be sold as like a a positive thing for growth. You've you've recently written a blog post about pursuing growth, and I think ultimately that's still what a lot of companies are looking for. Um, so in order to like make inclusion diversity like marketable you have to be able to make an argument that is actually going to make the organization more money in the long run or it's going to like save you money in the long run which i guess you can apply to the civil service but again i haven't been in the civil service long enough to really make as developed claims about that i'm sure i will at some point but in my previous role i will say that diversity inclusion was very much like in at one point and then it was kind of put on the shelf once the pandemic happened and resources needed elsewhere and when it was time to kind of let some staff go it happened to be a lot of women and a lot of women from minority backgrounds that mysteriously left in that year be it because their roles were no longer like existing or because they're like look I'm sick of this workplace I need to find opportunities elsewhere and that was not exclusive to my previous organization it was the case elsewhere as well and I think that's not uncommon. And I think it's because within, not to take, turn this into like a Marxist view because I'm not a Marxist, but like I feel like ultimately if you're working within a capitalist system and the objective is to make money, things like identity are actually an inefficiency. They're not necessarily like conducive with the goals of an organization as much as you try and spin it. And I even re read a report recently about like the, the infamous McKinsey report about diversity makes X money extra for companies, like being kind of like on a weird methodology. And I think that is the case. I feel like it needs to be okay to say that being diverse is just the right thing to do. It doesn't need to be like financially better. Although if you look at the wider society, I'm sure the cost of like educating people who are like poor or making sure they have decent housing is actually more cost effective than putting them in prison at higher amounts or excluding them but that's another conversation yeah it is and i i think it shows how wide you can go with this this point and 
it can quickly get quite philosophical and um and whilst I do enjoy my philosophical conversations, I think that longer lasts a lot longer in terms of, you know, the role of a business in, in the wider society and well actually if it's doing some of these things, um from a societal point of view, if it's integrating well, integrating, including people, um, that's also playing a better role. Um but yeah, there I must admit a lot of the sort of diversity inclusion stuff I did it was trying to pitch it from a business case perspective, um, because that's what what cuts through. Um, some extents you could say that's, well, okay, that's because, you know, it's businesses, although to be honest, we're working in government. Um, but then it's like, well, actually, is it just a case of, you know, are we being just unfair? And, and, you know, um, I think we like to think of ourselves as fair people, but we don't necessarily always, uh, see that happen when we take a really quite critical, uh, examination of the way we work. Um, those are my two cents, a very quick one anyway, but I, I think you probably agree that we could probably go on for a while on that. Um, so, so maybe actually um, one, one other thing that may, might be good to talk a bit about, because, you know, you mentioned a few other things that you do um, and and also kind of uh, life behind or away from the world of work. Um, so tell us a bit more about your other activities. Okay, so I can't, I'll go chronologically. So since, so when I, well, this, I'll, this is a quick side. When I was a teenager, I used to write for like music publications. I used to like love music journalism, which is a really random thing. I used to write like reviews for albums for like this small website that was based in the US. And like I wrote my own blog when I was like 13, which is just a weird thing that I used to do. Uh, so I, I, that kind of helped my writing skills. And now like the government, like my department has a blog that, updates on our service so I guess that's a transferable skill but when I was 17 I got involved in a youth campaigning organization it was a fellowship campaign called the Advocacy Academy based in Brixton and I founded a housing campaign with some other young campaigners during that fellowship and we've been working for the last six years to have some affordable housing built in the London Borough of Lambeth on Brixton Hill and that campaign is still going to this day we are we have architects on board we have landscape architects we have a community consultation penciled in for January and we're hoping to have uh, some ground broken if not this year if not this year coming the year after and that has been basically like a second job since then uh, so I've been so that's kind of why I, I kind of I keep it almost in equal stead with my actual career because even though I don't get any money from it it's still like a, it's something I've been doing longer than I was in sixth form when I when I started the campaign and I've gone through I've completed a degree in that time completed a grad scheme in that time I'm now another job so it just feels strange to not mention it as part of my career because when I didn't have a career I still had that campaign and from that I became a trustee of the Accuracy Academy charity uh, last year was it last year I think it was last year over a year ago in any case and have been doing that for a while as well basically shaping the strategy of the organization steering through very difficult times um, the BLM movement and the pandemic both had a huge impact on the charity sector for very good reasons but it also meant that being a trustee was a lot harder than it used to be uh, so I spin those plates as well. In my previous job, I liberally 
made sure that I could do things for those side projects as I was working as well when I had the time. And now I'm trying to put a stop to that. So I have more of a separation, but it's very difficult. But yeah, I do think it's important that people who do things, whether it be what I do in terms of campaigning or if it's like creative ventures, people kind of allow those to flourish as they would their own careers. And I, but at the same time, I don't necessarily believe in monetizing your passions and your hobbies. So I made the conscious decision not to go into work for a charity or work in housing in my career, at least not for the time being, which is kind of an unpopular opinion, but it's something I, I, I'm quite vocal about. I mean, it's, it's uh, really interesting to hear and, you know, it's not every day that you uh, speak to someone that's, um, you know, literally created a grassroots activism campaign really at sixth form um i mean what what made you get get into this well part of being on the fellowship was that we all had our own campaigns but it's also very like crazy to expect a 17 year old to like create and maintain a campaign so fortunately we had the help of two organizations one was citizens uk which is a really well-known national grassroots campaigning organization and also london clt which stands for london community land trust which is a housing uh charity in london and we work with london clt to this day on kind of working with a steering group of local residents and campaigners on the issue and getting the decisions made about the site and for example recently we had a meeting with the architects and i was like we need like fewer one and two bedroom homes on this site and more family homes because if you know brixton you know that there's plenty of tiny one beds popping up around the place and very few homes for actual families so making sure that that's in the pipeline as well basically it was a very kind of organic thing that happened we realized that gentrification affects young people in south london like a lot in very different ways in very pressing ways so it made sense to kind of do this campaign because we thought as there is that there is there is land in lambeth and instead of just seeing another like high rise of like luxury apartments pop up what well, how great would it be if one of these plots was used for genuinely affordable housing that was based on real incomes it also came from the shock of realizing that affordability in like local government terms actually means 80 percent of market value which is not affordable so it, it came to answer your question really succinctly. It came from a point of being the kind of part of being very precocious, which, which if you may have gathered by now, I was a very precocious young person and still am even as a 23 year old. So it was like, there's a problem that these adults can't solve. So why don't I solve it? And I learned the hard way that it's actually very difficult. Yeah. There's a lot to, to take in, but no, it's, it's, um, it's pretty inspirational. I'd say to actually hear it. Um, and clearly, um, I dare say that's probably not going to stop anytime soon either in terms of some of the things that you want to do. I think it's time for us to move to the quickfire questions. Now, I usually uh, ask two sets of questions, uh, the more straightforward ones or the philosophical questions. Which one do you fancy? Let's start with the straightforward and work our way up. Okay. First one, work or play? play second love or friendship friendship 
Three, money or happiness? Happiness. Four, summer or winter? Winter. Five, morning or evening? Morning. Six, doer or thinker? Doer. Ah, that's interesting. I love what you um, Seven, sprint or marathon? Marathon. Eight, night out or night in? Night in, easily. God, night out. <laughs> uh, number nine, cautious or bold? Cautious. And number 10, street smarts or book smarts? Street smart. Cool, interesting. That doer or thinker one, oh, that's interesting. Huh? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Gemini, so I often contradict myself. <laughs> it's okay, we all do. Uh, I do it all the time. Um, yeah, uh, actually, yeah, I was just thinking about this whole thing about, uh, this is jumping back, sorry, but uh, when you were mentioning that you were like, oh yeah, I like to plan and program and stuff, uh, as in program in the sense of, you know, create plans. Um, yeah, I find it a bit of a nightmare working with policy people sometimes. Um, so I don't know how you how you find it maybe it's better but uh it's it can be a bit tricky i work mostly with contractors and developers and designers so i don't work with policy people directly i they're kind of at an, an arm's length so i don't have I, but my colleagues shared plenty of stories for me being a doer it means breaking down the thinking to the point where you're you're thinking and implementing things as you go i can't stand just com- having a conversation it's like where should we go for dinner tonight like the kind of back and forth of that i'm like no we're gonna book it we have to have something in the diary so that's kind of how i classify doer i'm a cheat in the sense that with all those quick fires because i was like i like play but my idea of play is also like updating the community timeline while i listen to music <laughs> so i found ways of working through those by cheating basically yeah well i mean it's a subjective thing i think we all answer it in our own way um I think it's always interesting though because it's the gut instinct um right well we're, we're low on time I, I reckon we could do you fancy one philosophical question yeah sure what is your most strongly held belief that <laughs> i really do believe that everything happens for a reason it's kind of tacky like but i'm very superstitious and i'm very spiritual despite being really like matter of fact about the world so i do believe that um i've been on a a set path or a path that just doesn't feel like it happened by chance fascinating well um but costa it's been uh great to talk um really interesting to hear about um some of your career but also the things outside and kind of some of your things in terms of your background coming from an immigrant uh, family as well um just wanted to ask if there was anything else you wanted to share with either myself or the audience oh well one of your quick five questions from a previous episode was favorite quote and i actually researched this because when i listened to the episode i was like panicking because i don't really do quotes like i'm not someone who like has inspirational quotes on my instagram feed this is not something i do um, but I found that there was one that came to mind, apart from Real Housewives quotes, which I have to say I'm a huge reality TV fan, which is another part of my personality that I feel like I need to articulate so people think I'm not too stuffy. But there's this tweet that was from 20, 2019, and it says it's from the user The Trudes, and it says, my dream do- job is not working, no work, I don't dream about labour. 
and that changed my life in so many profound ways. I just thought it's a really good quote to share on a podcast about working. Yeah, great. Well, I'm glad I asked. And I must admit, I was just like, what would I answer for that? And I've got a fridge magnet that I got from my yoga class that is a Socrates quote about uh, not looking to the past, well, to change things, don't look at the past, look at the future. I've already butchered it, but it's literally <laughs> a fridge magnet um, across from where I do these podcast uh, recordings. Well, okay, great. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, I hope you have a nice rest of the week. Thanks, you too. Thank you very much for listening. I've been your host, Tamar Chowdhury. If you liked what you heard, perhaps consider subscribing. You can also find more information about me at my website, tamarchowdhury.co.uk. And here you can also find my full list of podcasts, as well as my weekly written blogs. If you do want to get in contact or have suggestions and feedback, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Do drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. 